Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, and things are intense globally right now, as we're all well aware, and there's an impact on our systems physiologically as well as psychologically. We're on alert right now, all of us, for our health, for our finances. We're concerned about racial justice. We're concerned about the state of our country. We're concerned for the earth. And the list goes on and on. And then we also all have our personal burdens and challenges and struggles. So at this time, more than ever, we are going to be showing the signs of stress. There's more cortisol, the stress hormone in our systems. We're more fragile, more easily reactive. Uh, we're dealing with isolation, which increases stress. It's a challenging time. And so we need resilience. Resilience is defined as uh, the ability to recover from difficulties. And the American Psychological Association defines resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant stress. So resilience is a real thing and we really need it. <laughs> I was scheduled to give this talk three weeks ago and I had to cancel at the last minute. Um, and the reason that I had to cancel is that a young person, a young 18-year-old boy in my family died unexpectedly. And um, it's been a, a subsequent to that, it's been an incredibly challenging time for my partner and me and our family. Um, and fortunately, I already have this practice and I also have um, been recently studying and teaching about resilience and and it's it was just really great there's this buddhist phrase dig your well before your house is on fire and i was really fortunate to have dug a little bit of the resilience well in my own life over time but also most recently teaching about resilience and all the practices that i'm going to bring to you tonight i've been using quite urgently in my own life So in cognitive science, a synonym for resilience is the term self-regulation, which refers to the ability to healthfully manage distress, healthfully manage distress. We all have ways we manage distress. And in fact, the Buddha teaches about this in um, the simile of the two arrows. He says, we all have pain. It's the first noble truth, suffering exists. We all have loss. We all experience impermanence. We all experience stress and suffering and challenge. That just comes with the territory of being a living being. So we could call that the pain of like an arrow being shot in our arm. Well, what a lot of us do to distract ourselves away from that initial pain is to shoot a second arrow, which also is painful. Um, in psychology, the notion of the second arrow is called self-management. These are strategies we use to deal with stress that don't help us or others in the long run. So when we go to self-blame, self-criticism, blaming or rage or cruelty towards others, 
addictions and compulsions of all kinds. These are all second arrow or self-management strategies. But what is self-regulation and how do we practice that? So we're all gonna get the first arrow, but what do we do instead of shooting those second arrows? And in Buddhism, we're taught that what we do is we bring in these two beautiful qualities of awareness and compassion. Awareness or mindfulness, mindful awareness allows us to be present with what is non-judgmentally. And then compassion allows us to approach it with a sense of deep kindness, curiosity, creativity, and care. So we want to talk about specific ways to use these sort of strategies of awareness and, and kindness or awareness and compassion so that we're not uh, leaning into learned self-management strategies and also forgiving ourselves when we do because we're human. So neuroscience researchers have thus far found four main ways people bring themselves back into emotional balance through self-regulation. And so these are all resilient strategies. And I'll just name them and then we'll go into them more deeply. So the first is identifying what we're feeling or naming emotions. That's it. The second one is thinking about a situation in a different way or reframing. The third one is the real or imagined presence of a person or being whom we feel cares about us. We could call that accompaniment. And then the fourth one is thinking about or doing something skillful instead of what's bothering us, which we call redirecting. All four of these practices, which have been studied and uh, verified in neuroscience show up very concretely in Buddhist practice. The Buddha was a scientist observing what was happening and what actions and responses lead to greatest well-being. We'll spend the rest of our time together with these four strategies and I'll be leading two practices as we go along tonight and both of these practices come from the mindful self-compassion curriculum, which is based on Buddhist teachings and developed by Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. And I recently received my, uh, you know, I don't know, tap on the head from them to be a, a teacher in their tradition and co-taught a mindful self-compassion class with Jane Barris, who's here tonight. And that was so wonderful. So the first of these four strategies, as I mentioned, is identifying our emotions. And the Buddha teaches this as an important aspect of the four foundations of mindfulness. It's in the third foundation where we're talking about consciousness. So from our, from our place of the attention of the aware or the observing mind, we can see everything external that comes in through the five senses. And then internally we experience thoughts and emotions. And so 
um, bringing awareness to the thoughts and emotions is a really critical practice for learning that uh, sense of subject and object that allows us some distance and some peace. In, but what we're talking about here is very specifically finding in the moment what our emotional state is and naming it, giving it a name. And if you have doubts that talking about feelings will help you, you're definitely not alone. Most people think that naming emotions is a huge waste of time. We're acculturated that way. But research shows that um, it, people don't think it, that it makes things better to name what's happening emotionally, even though the effectiveness of this approach can be seen with fMRI, with brain scanning machines. So it's, it's proven, so we just kind of have to move past our conditioning about uh, feeling that naming emotions won't help us uh, deepen in resilience, because it will. And that conditioning may be about learning to cope by paying no attention to our bodies. And so the naming of feelings is unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Mindfulness requires us to begin paying attention to our bodies. And that's a good thing, even though it's hard at times. So the experience of naming what's happening not only works to calm us down, but when it's done warmly, it strengthens the prefrontal cortex's connections and ability to come online to support our stressed limbic system. So when we're distressed, it's the limbic system that's activated, and in particular, the amygdala. So if this is a hand model of the brain, some of you have seen before, um, and this is the the fingers are the prefrontal cortex, and this is the amygdala inside, it becomes distressed. And we can learn to hold our distress in warmth and kindness. And when we do that, we're bringing the prefrontal cortex on board. So when we name our emotions, we want to do it not clinically and definitely not critically, but actually warmly so that we're strengthening those connections between particularly the right prefrontal cortex and the amygdala in the limbic brain. So the phrase that goes with this practice is you name it and you tame it. And what the fMRI show is that the activity in the amygdala decreases when the right word is matched with the right emotion. Isn't that interesting? So what we want to do, say, say we feel some kind of general contraction in the torso, but we don't know what it is. We can kind of begin to make some guesses, like sadness, hmm, anxiety, hmm, <laughs> you know, sorrow, fear, grief, confusion, oh, worry, oh, this is worry. When we find the right word to name what the emotion is, the system, the system recognizes it. What's happening in the brain is there's a, another part of the brain right near the amygdala called the hippocampus, and it has, it has the capacity for language and it can also perceive time. And when it finds the right word for what the amygdala is experiencing, there's connections there. And there's a, there's a, there's a uh, 
release. So we want to bring in both the awareness component and the compassion component to naming emotions. All right, so let's try it. This, this practice will just take about, you know, less than five minutes, probably take three minutes. Okay. And again, these practices come from mindful self-compassion. So we're going to do this one in a meditative way, but once you get used to it, you can use it on the spot in daily life. Oh, what am I feeling? Oh, wow, this is excitement. This is what excitement feels like, you know, or whatever it is. Okay, so make sure you're in a comfortable position. And close your eyes and maybe take a relaxing breath or two. <sighs> And if you like, you can bring a hand to the heart and offer yourself supportive touch. Okay. And now expanding your awareness to your body as a whole. And in your mind's eye, sweeping your body from head to toe. Stopping where you can sense a little tension or discomfort. Or maybe there's a sense of opening or ease. What are you noticing? Just feel what's feelable in your body right now. And now if you can, please choose a single location in your body where sensation expresses itself most strongly. Perhaps a familiar place or a new place. Could be sensations in your neck, your stomach, your heart, shoulders or jaw, just seeing what's there. And your mind inclining gently toward that spot. So if this sensation had an emotion, what might that emotion be? Worry or sadness? Could be calm or comfort? Grief? Confusion? Contentment? Fear, longing, interest, despair. If you're unaware of what or unsure of what emotion you're feeling, that's okay. Simply experiencing the emotion is enough or the sensation. And if you're having many emotions, see if you can name the strongest emotion associated with the sensation. And finally, repeating the name of the emotion to yourself in a tender, understanding voice 
as if you were validating for a friend what they were feeling. Oh, that's longing. Oh, that's grief. Yeah. some awareness to emotions, naming emotions as a practice for resilience. Okay. So that's the first one. And the second resilient strategy people use with success is reframing. So in reframing, we take the present experience as it is whatever our experience is in the present moment and put a different frame or perspective on it to positively impact our own response. So if you call a friend and they don't call you back, instead of putting the frame of, oh my gosh, I wonder if they don't like me anymore, we can put on the frame of, ah, they're probably really busy and our own response is affected by the new frame. Or another example, if someone cuts you off in traffic and you think, what an inconsiderate creep, that will create one kind of a reaction. But if you intentionally create a different frame, like, gosh, I hope they're not rushing to the hospital, I hope they're okay, different response, different internal response. This is a really skillful practice, just that. But we can reframe in other ways, too. We can use gratitude as a way to reframe experience, looking for the good. And we can also use compassion as a way to reframe experience. People use reframing every time they change their perspective on an issue or event. People reference their spirituality, their integrity, what they, how they see the world. These are all different kind of um, medicines we pull out of our own minds to reframe a situation so that we will respond as our best possible selves. So, and also placing value on warmth, as I was mentioning earlier, can be a way of reframing that supports the gro growth of affection and resonance in, our, in us generally. So um, warm, choosing to select a frame with warmth in it is also a very wise, resilient strategy. So we're going to practice a reframing exercise now. And this is the last um, exercise we'll do together tonight. And this is called the self-compassion break. And many of you know it. James often teaches it. Jane teaches it. Um, Self-compassion has three components, mindfulness, remembering that you're not alone with whatever you're dealing with, it's called common humanity, 
and kindness or warmth, self-kindness, which is something we can always grow in. And you know something that I learned recently that is just so wonderful is that the part of the brain that is kind, the, there's a whole bunch of different structures in the brain and body that are kind, but the, the part of the brain that really can language kindness, which is particularly the right prefrontal cortex, continues growing, both actually literally growing new neurons and also growing the connections between neurons until the day we die. If you live to be 120, you know, on year 119, you can still be growing this part of the brain that can hold your experience and warmth, which may be why we sometimes experience elders as wise. Isn't that neat? And the Buddha, I'll say more about this in a minute, but the Buddha was really into the whole idea of warmth also. So, but we're talking about reframing. So, um, so mindfulness and um, common humanity and self-kindness are the three components. And like the last practice we did, once you get used to this, it can be done quickly. Really the trick with all of these practices, whether it's mindfulness or loving kindness or any of these practices that we do together, the trick is just remembering we have them available to us. You know, the power of the sticky note on the dashboard or on the bathroom mirror. Self-compassion breaks available to you and it really can make a difference. So, um, so I will lead, again, I'm going to lead us through it briefly and meditatively, but know that it could be a, a quick process right in the moment. Okay. So one last time. Close your eyes, partially or fully. And bring to mind a situation that is somewhat challenging for you, but please don't bring to mind any of your most challenging things because we want this practice to you know, not be activating. We just want to use it as a, as a trial run, right? So bring something like, you know, that time your cat scratched the couch or something, you know, no big thing. So allow yourself to see, hear, and feel your way into that challenge. feeling into that discomfort that you felt. And then say to yourself, slowly and clearly, oh, this is a moment of suffering. And that's mindfulness. That's the mindfulness part. Other options include, oh, this hurts or ouch, or this does not feel good. Next, say to yourself again, slowly and clearly, suffering is a part of living. That's common humanity. Other options include, I'm not alone, or me too. Or 
others in my community would feel a lot like me in this situation. And now put your hands over your heart or wherever it feels supportive, feeling the warmth of your hands and say to yourself, may I be kind to myself. May I give myself what I need. That self-kindness. And if you're having difficulty finding the right words, imagine that a dear friend or loved one is having the same problem as you. What would you say to this person heart to heart without giving advice? If your friend were to hold just a few of your words in their mind, what would you like them to be? What message would you like to deliver? Now, can you offer the same message to yourself? And slowly open your eyes. Okay, so that's reframing. In this case, we were reframing a difficult situation with self-compassion, mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. And this reframe, this bringing in of warmth and compassion is foundational to resilience. And related to this is our third strategy, you recall, it's the strategy of accompaniment, the real or imagined presence of a being who cares about us. We could call this the strategy of warmth. In Buddhism, we cultivate this strategy with three of the four Brahma-viharas, or divine abodes of the heart. They're critical, essential aspects of Buddhist practice. They're all forms of love and care. The first is befriending or loving kindness. The second is compassion. And the third is appreciation. And they're all held, again, essentially and exquisitely in the arms of equanimity. And equanimity is the ability to allow things to flow, to not become enmeshed, to not control. Those are, that equanimity is an essential part of, of, of genuine and authentic love. But those first three, befriending, compassion, and appreciation, those are all about bringing care and warmth and kindness. And in Buddhism, we do it with visualizing. We can just generate the energy straight out of our heart, which is how the Buddha actually taught it. But over the last 1,500 years or so, we've been using this phrase practice where we bring specific beings, loved ones to mind, the real or imagined presence of someone who cares about us. This is a quote from neuroscience educator Sarah Payton. Emotional warmth is the experience of being met or meeting others with affection and welcome. It feels like a gentle heat in our heart, spreading inside our chest and abdomen. It comes with relaxation and comfort. 
It brings us a sense of belonging. Where does it come from? From a feeling of being cared for, nourished and nurtured. We experience warmth and we know we matter. In the Brahma Vihara practice, we use language and visualization to feel connection with beings. And that's what calms our system. We feel the connection and we offer this sense of warmth out. But in the end, we find that it's not, we begin with where it's easiest, with loved ones or sometimes with the self. We begin where it's easiest. And then ultimately we find that it's not even about the object. It's not even about the particular being. It's an energy that cradles everything. The great ocean of compassion, including us, so that we can live through the loss and the challenge and be held and cradled and loved throughout. So our practice for tonight, for this strategy of loving kindness, we did a little bit of it tonight at the end of the meditation. And in a few minutes, we'll sing a loving kindness song together. But before we do that, I'm going to take us to the fourth of these four uh, recently named successful strategies for resilience uh, by neuroscientists. And that is redirecting. So we've done naming emotions, reframing, and bringing in warmth. And the fourth one is redirecting. And this is where we just get our minds and often our bodies as well onto a different track from whatever is distressing us. And the Buddha taught about this too. He talks about, um, I don't have the Sutta right up in front of me, but James, maybe you know it, but he talks about, about if, you're on, if, you're, if you're on a theme, he says, I mean, that's the translation, I don't know what he exactly said, but something like that. He says, if you're on a theme that's unwholesome, well then, get yourself on a different theme. <laughs> Just hop on over to something else so that you're feeling more in a skillful and wholesome state. And then he says, this is like how a carpenter, oh, were you gonna say more about this, James? Okay, he uh, says, yeah. okay, he says how a carpenter can, get, like if a peg gets stuck in a hole, a, a skilled carpenter can get it out by putting a different peg in there, a smaller one, and then hammering that, and it'll pop out the bad one. So this idea of redirecting is skillful, and I, but I do want to, and I'm going to say more about it, but first I do want to distinguish it from um, avoiding. <laughs> right? D d redirecting or, or, this, or skillful distraction and avoiding are two different things. Redirecting replenishes us. And avoiding depletes us. Redirecting allows us to return to our troubles and handle them wisely and with self-care. Avoiding keeps us away from our troubles in such a way that they mount. So um, another reason we need awareness so desperately and why it's so skillful to practice mindfulness is that the more we have awareness at our disposal, the more we, can, we have at, 
available to us the capacity to discern whether we're using compassion and awareness or we're going to second arrow where we're momentarily getting away from the pain, the initial pain, but we're ultimately increasing our own suffering, which is what avoidance does. Or it's wise redirecting allows us and allows us to replenish and we know these things nature nature is an amazing redirection gardening all the arts every single one of them is skillful use of the strategy of the uh, self-regulating strategy of redirection exercise unless we go overboard and use it compulsively. Uh, companion animals. <laughs> the list goes on and on. And it's really wise to make a list of the things you love and make sure that you do at least one or two of them every single day. Because remember, I, I was think, remembering that phrase, dig your well before your house is on fire. If you already have a habit of walking in nature or making clay pots, <laughs> or whatever it is you love. S meditating, sitting on the back porch looking at the birds. If you already have that habit, then when distress arises, which it will because that's part of the deal here, when distress arises, you'll have that already available to you, automated in your habits. We have this... Um, consumer culture, this busyness culture that sometimes causes us to put all our joy down at the bottom of our to-do list, and that's a terrible mistake. So redirecting. Okay. So one of the, one of the things I do all the time since I was a baby to redirect is I sing. And I would sing um, even if there were no neuroscience about it, just like many of us would meditate even if there was no neuroscience about <laughs> neuroscience information about mindfulness. It's so cool that there is because it's so validating. And, um, and that's the case with singing too. So I just wanted to show, show you some of that before we sing. Another couple songs to end. Oop. So, um, yeah, I grew up in a musical family. My mom's a singer, too. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, just really little, like three, four years old, and my mother, there were five kids in our family, and my mother would sing us all to sleep with lullabies. I remember somehow being cognizant that something extraordinary was going on. Somehow I just knew it with the singing. And there was. <laughs> there was something extraordinary going on. And you know, James in his Awakening Joy course, he always sings at the end of every class. Because he knows too. There's just something really important and special about singing and even in these times where we can only meet together online and we have to sing together from behind muted microphones um, we can still sing and 
and it's a really good thing. So here's a few, a few of the uh, studies. So singing lowers cortisol, relieves stress and tension, lowers anxiety levels, improves depression and feelings of loneliness, boosts confidence, releases endorphins, influences confidence and self-esteem. It's a mindful activity. It improves social bonding and social cohesion. It's an excellent icebreaker. <laughs> Synchronized heartbeats. Talk about Sangha. You know, we have Sangha and we I think we synchronize in so many ways when we simply meditate together, but but singing really helps with that too. Singing together creates a strong sense of community and social inclusion. Key part of recovery for people with mental health needs. Increases self-efficacy. And it said uh, in that last one that 60% of participants in a homeless choir went on to volunteer, get a job, or move into more stable accommodation. Isn't that neat? It's a powerful tool for emotion-focused coping. It strengthens the immune system. So does mindfulness, by the way, and so does gratitude. All these beautiful, wholesome things that the Buddha pointed us to. And I don't know that the Buddha didn't point us to singing. There are, there are um, I mean, it doesn't show up in the suttas necessarily, but, but you know, there are uh, carvings of Buddhist musicians from like 2,000 years ago. Improves breathing and lung capacity. Stimulates the vagus nerve. You may know if you follow about, about well-being and distress that the vagus nerve is really key. And it even helps with chronic pain. So that is that. So let's do this thing then, right? Let's sing together. And... Um, I want you to know if you haven't been coming regularly, highlight it there for here. Whoops. Um, hmm. Can't get to the bottom. Oh, here it is. Well, I hope you can see those words. I'm sorry they're not at their largest. Maybe that will help. Okay. Um, I sing. James has invited me to sing regularly with you here. Um, and so if you want to sing, we sing here. And also, I have a Tuesday night drop-in sit and sing sangha you're always invited to. The link is on my website. It's from 7 to 8.30 a.m. Pacific time on Tuesday nights. So we just meditate and sing. That's all we do. Okay, so I was the last two, so the four strategies we talked about tonight were naming emotions, reframing, warmth, which we practice in Buddhism with the Brahma Viharas, and um, redirecting or, yeah, wise distraction. So for, um, for warmth and redirecting, we're going to sing May We. Now this is just the traditional, the long form, traditional Buddhist phrases for loving kindness put to music. And we'll do each pronoun twice. Mm -hmm. 
May I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May I be truly happy and deeply peaceful. May I be healthy and strong and physically at ease. May I take care of myself and live with well-being. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May I be truly happy and deeply peaceful. May I be healthy and strong and physically do this last song um oops there we go dedication of merit so um the buddhist understanding is that when we come together in gatherings like this we generate good energy and it's in all our cells and it's connecting us to each other and it's in the rooms we're in and we take this energy and with the generosity of our hearts and spirits offer it out for the benefit of all beings everywhere this song is the Pure Land Buddhist tradition version of the Dedication of Merit, translated and put to music by the abbot of the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, which is where this sangha meets when we can, live, hasn't been for months now, uh, Reverend Hung Shur.
Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, may our minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. kindness find reward may all who sorrow leave our grief and pain may this boundless light meet the darkness of our sacred night because our hearts are one this world of pain turns into paradise may all become compassionate and wise may all become compassionate and wise all right Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you, James, for inviting me to do this talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.